Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble, with exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. The following podcast contains explicit language. Welcome to Mom and Dad are Fighting, Slate's parenting podcast for Thursday, March 30th, the Sperm in Top Hats edition. I'm Gabriel Roth. I'm an editor at Slate, and I'm the father of Eliza, age six, and Leo, who is two and a half. I'm here for this very special episode with two, not one, but two guest hosts, both of whom you've heard on the program in recent weeks. First up, from Oakland, California, we have the writer and critic Carvel Wallace. Carvel, say hi and tell us about your kids. Hi, everyone. Um, I, uh, my name is Carvel, and I have two kids, Ezra, aged 14, my son, and Georgia, aged 11, my daughter. And um, right now, the three of us are in a long, protracted debate about the true nature of life, and is it important to do hard work? Hmm. Let us know what you figure out. <laughs> uh, I'll let you know if I figure anything please out. Please do, yeah. Um, and uh, from the wilds of New Hampshire, uh, we have the writer and podcaster Rebecca Lavoy, host also of the uh, Crime Writers On podcast. Rebecca, hello. Hello. I feel a little bit like Stacey Keenan and My Two Dads right now. That's just what I was thinking about. You guys didn't watch My Two Dads, didn't you? <laughs> no. No, I didn't. I did. I loved that show growing up. Yay. <laughs> um, tell us about your kids, Rebecca. Well, I have a studious and mature 15 and a half year old named Henry, who's learning to drive, and a goofy and adorable and brilliant 14-year-old named Teddy. So two boys, both teenagers, and of course, I have a 16-year-old stepdaughter named Lily. Nice. All right. Uh, the three of us are going to be talking today about your parenting hacks. I say you because I'm addressing you, the listener, with your headphones on or driving in your car. Uh, you personally have posted uh, suggestions for parenting tricks and hacks and ways of making your family life work and, and ways of making your kids uh, behave properly. Uh, you posted them to our Facebook page. You called them into our voicemail today. We're going to be discussing them. Some of them are brilliant and other listeners will want to adopt them. Uh, some of them are questionable uh, and we will raise skeptical eyebrows at them. Um, in addition, there will be triumphs, fails. We will take two calls from listeners looking for advice, recommendations, all of the usual stuff. Uh, but first, a couple of announcements. I mentioned our Facebook page, and if you haven't done this already, you should go to it and, and click the like button. Uh, it's facebook.com slash mom and dad are fighting. Um, a lot of discussion there. Uh, second of all, Slate Plus. If you are a Slate Plus member, on our last episode, you got to hear Slate writer Rebecca Onion discuss a difficult parenting quandary in which she was forced to choose between two daycares, one a sober, buttoned-up, responsible uh, city-run one, and the other a beautiful, magical one run by a hippie lady out in the woods. Which way did she go? Our Slate Plus members will find out on this episode. Uh, if you want to know, join Slate Plus. You can get there by going to uh, slate.com slash momanddadplus. That's slate.com slash mom and dad plus. Okay, let's get to it. Triumphs and fails. Carvel, have you had any triumphant or, or fail-tastic uh, occurrences over the past couple of weeks? 
Yes, I have. I, I, as I always say, every day is a parenting fail and every day is a parenting triumph. <laughs> so I can pick from either category. Um, but today I'm going to talk about a fail, which is this. Uh, this is an ongoing issue that I feel like I cannot get right, which is this. I make dinner too late. And here's why it's a problem. So I come home from work, a long day of telling people what I think about everything. And when I, I pick up the kids from school and I get home and it's about 4.30-ish. And at that time, I don't really need to start. If I start dinner at 4.30, then we eat at like 5 and it's too early or 5.30. And then they spend the rest of the night like snacking and making a mess of the kitchen. And I can't stand that. So I don't start making dinner as soon as I get home, which means that that period from 4.30 till whenever I start is just downtime. And because I've just come home from work, I've been finding that I take too much advantage of that downtime. I Once I sit down on the couch or lay down in bed, it's like I never want to get back up. Mm. So then I keep like failing to like brine the pork or, or prepare the chicken or whatever the thing is I'm going to do. And then pretty soon it's like 6 and then 6.30 and the kids are snacking and doing homework and I haven't started dinner. So by the time we serve dinner at like 8, 8.15, it's way late. And here's why that's a problem because we have this rule in our house that there are no screens allowed after 8.30, right? We cut off the screens at 8.30. So the kids take this as a challenge to get in as much screen time as they can before 8.30. This is now like they have to ab absorb all the media they can. If I serve dinner at like 8.05, what happens is all they're thinking is this is eating into my final <laughs> screen time. So they rush through dinner. They don't want to talk. They don't want to, like, have the, like, family dinner from the movies. They're just, like, within three minutes, they're like, Dad, I'm done. And, like, before I've even had a chance to sit down, you know, because I'm still, like, tidying up in the kitchen, they're like, I'm finished, Dad, I'm finished. And they're off to the screens again. And it feels like we never get that full dinner experience. And that happened last night. And I just was like, I've got to figure out a way to motivate myself to get dinner served earlier so that we can actually have a leisurely dinner. Because I feel like as a family, we're kind of missing out on that. Wouldn't it just be easier to uh, change the screen time time to like nine? Wouldn't that help? No, it, I thought about, believe me, my 14-year-old <laughs> son <laughs> believes that you're right. But no, because they, I, we turn lights off at 930. And they, that last hour is really important. And actually, I'm going to talk about that later in the show, probably when we talk about parenting hacks. Because they actually get a lot done during during that nine, 8.30 to 9.30 time in terms of getting ready for the school next day, getting out their clothes, making their lunches. If I moved it to 9, it would just push the whole bedtime routine later. But then maybe that's, maybe that's where I'm failing, is that my bedtime routine is too stringent and too, too rigid uh, for the situation. Mm. So I don't know. I feel like when there's a process like cooking and it involves a lot of different moving parts and each of those parts takes some amount of time that you can estimate within some sort of probability range, I just, I'm never going to get that right. Like I'm always going to time it either start too early or start too late or whatever it is. Some people who are really gifted have just an intuitive sense, like a feel for the passage of time and the sense of how much uh, time a task is going to take. And then for me, that stuff always breaks down. Yeah, that is not a gift I have. I don't understand time at all. I don't even know what it means. Like, where, what, what is it now? I don't even know what reality yeah, is at this point. You get metaphysical very quickly. <laughs> exactly. I know that once I get home, though, as soon as I make the mistake of sitting down on that couch and opening up Facebook or Twitter, I'm basically gone yeah. for the next, like, hour and a half, two hours. And I need to figure out a way to cut that down. Um, and I think everything would go smoother if I could, if I could will myself out of that uh, downtime. I feel like I'm definitely the rigid, like I'm definitely the, the unbending branch in this scenario. <laughs> I'm, 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 and I'm I picking up and you're laying down on that, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so that's that's where I run up against my own kind of control, like sort of logistical control management stuff with my kids. Hmm. In the end, Carvel, the person you're really parenting is yourself. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> Thank you. And see. And see. I, um, I have a fail that's very similar, unfortunately, and is also something that I like wind up doing every single time, which is um, snack. I don't morning snack. I don't usually have the kids during morning snack because I'm at work and on weekends it winds up being my wife who's around for morning snack usually. But every now and again, I wind up in charge of them at like 930. And that's the moment when like who it would be advisable to like just put a snack in their mouth right now and then the rest of your day is going to be great. But I 
forget about it. And this morning, I, there was a bunch of moving parts, and I wound up hanging out with them until 10, and I hand them off to my wife at 10. And right as I hand them off to her, they start having a meltdown. Like, they're, she's taking her out to the playground. She's taking them out to the playground. And she's, like, very excited, and they're all happy to go to the playground. And then they start breaking down. They start screaming. They don't want to put their shoes on. They want to take their scooters. They don't want their coats. And my wife looks at me, and she says, you did give them a snack, right? And like, no, of course I didn't give them Uh a snack. And so I've handed her these like sugar crashing monsters instead of the nice children who she was hoping to take to the playground. In a way, I wanted to make this a fail because having made my inability to give them a snack at the right moment a fail, I'm hoping that will like fix it into my brain as like a thing to remember for next time. 9.30, they need a snack. Keep that in mind, Gabe. (laughs) That's my fail. Uh, Rebecca, what have you got? Uh, I have a triumph and it is, I can't really, I don't want to say it's about me, but it felt like it was. So I'm just going to give myself credit for it. In my small town where I live, the kids go to school. It's a very athletics oriented community and I am not a sporty person. My kids do individual sports. Their dad um, is who I'm divorced from is a elite athlete it's not an exaggeration like he does triathlons he was like a junior olympian in high school that kind of thing so they do sports and they are definitely sort of a mix of two of our genes and um a couple weeks ago we had the sports awards for middle school for teddy which is like the oscars in our town the sports awards at least i always say it is because like everybody shows up for them and it's very ceremonial the kids wear ties um it's always the same there's always a montage of like a pop song and like a slideshow and it's always way too long um it's like a lot of formulaic elements to it that are are very funny um so my son Teddy was on the Nordic ski team, as is his brother. His brother's in high school. He's, of course, in middle school. And it came time at the end of the night for the Nordic team, which has like 40 kids on it to you know get presented their awards. And the big award, which I really like this, the, the coach gets to decide this, but I like the culture of Nordic skiing for this reason, because the big award with the big plaque is the sportsmanship award. And the coach got up. She made a speech. She said, um... This is going to go to the skier who was always the loudest cheerer for his team. But uh, the real story here is that at the start of one of our races, he tripped another skier, which is not uncommon, immediately stopped to help the other skier up. And then in the whole race, kept encouraging that skier to beat him, to stay ahead of him because he felt so bad for having tripped him. And at the end of the race, I asked him why he did it. And he said, I'd rather be a nice person than a winner. And that was my kid. That was Teddy Lavoie, who uh, won that sportsmanship award and had that story told about him. And, you know, of course, the the red angel, the red devil on my left shoulder was thinking like, you didn't really couldn't have been a winner because you're not that good at skier. <laughs> but if you if you know that about oh, yourself, no. uh, why not, you know, take the opportunity to be a great sportsman? So that was a, I felt like a parenting triumph. It was the kind of thing where like other parents come up to you and say like, oh, that was so great. What a great story. And and you pretend to take credit for the whole thing uh, when really it's just that your kid has, you know, a good sense of humor and good character. So I'm taking credit for that one and I'm calling it a triumph. It's definitely a triumph. I love the idea that good sportsmanship is what you fall back on if you're not good enough to win. <laughs> hey, at least I'm a nice yes, person. Yes, this is a winning strategy in life. Yeah, this is a winning strategy in life. You have to you have to be honest about who you are and then turn it into an advantage. That's exactly right. Exactly. In a way, he's the real winner. He's the like real cutthroat competitor. He figured out a way to win even <laughs> without the skiing talent. That's right. Exactly. That's right. Yeah, because who was the one that took the who was the one that took away the award at the end? Right. It was Teddy. Yeah. So there you go. Exactly. You got it. Thanks, guys. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Jumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to Chumbacasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. All right. Um, we are going to hear a call from a listener. We have two listener calls this week. Uh, people who have called our phone number to ask for our advice for some reason. Uh, if you also, uh, strangely, would like to hear our advice on your parenting problems, you can give us a call and leave a voicemail. The number is 424-255-7833. I'm going to say it again. It's 424-255-7833. Okay, let's go to our first listener call from Carrie. 
wondering what you think about kids and medication and particularly um, how you know where the line is between um, parenting is just really hard and kids are out of their tree and it all just takes a lot of work versus um, there's something more going on and it's time to look at um, medicating a kid for their you know, way of being in the world that is just really challenging, um, to say the least. So that's my question. I'm curious to hear you guys uh, talk about this a little bit and hear your take about um, when is when. So thank you so much. This is a this is a hard one and a serious one and an important one, I think. Um, Rebecca, do you have thoughts on this? I do. And I think it's interesting to note that I think the reason that this question was asked points to part of the issue here, which is that there is a parenting culture around medication that I think makes parents feel like they have to put the question out there and let other people decide it for them, or they have to get opinions about it because there is a culture of tremendous judgment around it. There's also a culture on the other side of, you know, this solves all the problems. And um, so I have a lot of experience with this. My younger son has ADHD, as do I, and he is... I think pretty textbook. I mean, we went through a really interesting process with him in large part because his diagnosis happened shortly after my divorce. So there was a lot of negotiating between his dad and I around medication. And so these conversations are very familiar to me, this idea of, you know, am I just medicating so it's easier for me kind of thing? I never felt that way. I mean, we had physicians and school professionals. And, you know, because my ex-husband was a little more hesitant about this, he took him to all kinds of specialists who all said, we could show you an x-ray of your son's brain right now. And that frontal lobe would be like really underdeveloped. And this medication, what it will do is it will help create those neural pathways to develop some executive skills. He will have an easier time getting through the day. And like a lot of the associated things that go on with not having great executive functions, um, he can deal with those separately. The social stuff, the you know guilt stuff, the depression stuff that kind of comes with not just being able to do the basic things that other kids can do. I mean, his issue socially was he always had like a real... Uh, high righteous sense of justice like if things if people were being arbitrary like it was a problem for him because he could see that you know that's very typical uh, ADHD behavior so I would say to this mom either find a professional in the school that you trust who has a lot of experiences with kids who have been on medication and sort of get their opinion as to whether or not you should go to your family physician and start this conversation or have the conversation with your family physician I think that there are valid maybe arguments on both sides i can tell you medication helped my kid a lot i can also tell you that this year he decided on his own at 14 that he didn't want to take it anymore and uh he's not doing so great in terms of organization in school so sometimes i kind of wish he hadn't uh, made this decision he felt strongly about it and i didn't feel like he was young enough to open his mouth and throw a pill down there every morning so um we're giving that a try this year. So it's complicated and there's a lot of culture around it and you get a lot of pressure both ways. And I feel you for how difficult that is. But ultimately, it should be between you, your educators that you trust and your physician and your child is uh, I, I would keep it there. What what was what reasons did Teddy give for wanting to go off the medication? I think he was on, frankly, what, something that you experience when you're on ADHD meds. And, you know, as an adult who started them as an adult, the first doctor we ever went to see said the smartest thing, which is the best way to find out if you need medication, if it's going to work, is to try it because um, it's not like antidepressants. There's no six week ramp up time. Right. You, you, you take a You take it. And if it makes you hyper and crazy, you it's not going to work for you. Um, if it makes you able to focus and get through the day and do everything you're supposed to do like a regular person, then it is right for you. Um, but like any medication as your body changes and as your metabolism changes and as things in your, you know, makeup change, sometimes it's it's not as effective as it used to be. I think in the past when he was younger, when he would say, you know, this is making me cranky or I feel like I can't focus, we could make that shift. Um, and I think he wasn't feeling super great on the medication at the beginning of the year. It was making him cranky or something. And he just said, I just feel better when I'm not taking it. I don't feel as, you know, moody. And, you know, we had just been through this like whole medication thing like a year before. And I just this year decided, you know what, let's just uh, 
let's let him let him sort of see and evaluate and we sort of check in on it i think he's sort of now leaning back the other way for next year going into high school but um it's it's a kind of conversation that we sort of have to have collaboratively you know it's not I, I wouldn't say kids should be able to make all their decisions for themselves, especially teenagers. But when it comes to this, it's, you know, it's not an antidepressant. Uh, so it feels different than if it were something that he medically, um, you know, wouldn't be healthy without. It, it's just it's different. It's it's a different. Of course, we don't know if she's talking about ADHD either. Right. That was the other thing. Yeah, I don't think the caller was. Specific yeah, she there. could be talking about anxiety or depression or any other, uh, you know, kinds of stuff. So, you know. I don't know. Go to the doctor. Yeah, I think. <laughs> yeah, I mean, you know, what what I thought was so great about what you just said, Rebecca, is that um, it draws this distinction between making a decision based on what we think might be easier for us as parents, and making a decision based on what we think might be easier for our kids. And that's something that I, you know, we. This is a question that has come, has arisen, and fallen multiple times with our fourteen year old, and. Um, I still don't know where we land on it. I still think it's something that we um, continue to go back and forth on. He does therapy, um, and when he gets a chance to talk to someone about all of his thoughts, that does seem to help him get clarity. And there are things that he struggles with, and we don't know necessarily at this point if what he's struggling with has to do with sort of like normal brain development and where he is as a teenager or if there's something else. But what I love about what you said is is that, um, you know, the the— question really coming down to would it be easier for this kid if they were able to kind of pare away some of the daily difficulties that happen for them so that they can feel more uh, functional? Because you're right that there is this sense of depression and sense of not being good enough that comes with failure to operate along the lines that you perceive as normal. And this is something I I felt super vividly when I was a kid because it just seemed like everyone else's brain and organization just worked better than mine did. Mm -hmm. Like I, we would pull out the homework. Mine would always have like peanut butter and jelly on it. And like, I just could never, I always felt like everyone was operating at a speed differently than the one that I was operating at. And that in and of itself was a minor problem, but the major problem was the sense of separation and isolation that that gave me. And that, as I grew older, particularly in my adolescence and early 20s, that became my biggest burden was the narrative that I'm not a part of the world, I don't fit in, I'm some weird, freaky kid that can't do anything right. That became a much bigger problem in my adult life. And so in retrospect, like I, no one, no one <laughs> that I was around growing up ever even remotely suggested or had any idea about medication right. or ADHD or anything like that. That just wasn't even how we talked about it then. But I wonder what would be different in my life if that had happened. Um, I, where I live in Oakland and Berkeley, I think there is a lot of judgment around parents who use medication to help their kids. And I think that that can be you know, there's so much judgment around parenting anyway, and everyone feels that every decision they make is being judged and uh, evaluated by sort of nameless, faceless parenting strangers who think that you're a bad parent if you do X, Y, and Z. I think it's really important to give people the, um, you know, the freedom to explore and make their own decisions, particularly by partnering with professionals and with the kid themselves to determine what the best path is. Yeah. Yeah. I, I completely agree that there's too much judgment around this stuff. And also that um, there are definitely kids for whom these medications can be really helpful and can really benefit them. And, and I want to make that clear before I say what I'm going to say, which is I, I was also a kid who was in his head and, and dreamy and had some organizational difficulties. And I see my older kid, Eliza, having those same challenges right now. And it, it sounds a lot like what you described, Carvel. And the, the caller said something about, like, is this just the kid's own way of being in the world? Um, and I, I could imagine someone suggesting medication for Eliza. And if I, if, if I had been, you know, a kid today rather than back 40 years ago, then I could imagine someone suggesting the same thing about me. And, um, I, I, I'm glad I didn't get treated for it, even though it was sort of difficult for me in, in, in certain ways, because I think those are aspects of my personality and, and of myself that I like that are also useful for me. Um, like I noticed that the three of us are writers and all three of us have some version of this and like, 
I'm sure you could have like, I'm sure I could have been better at turning my homework in on time. Like I definitely could have been. And my mother will confirm that I definitely could have been. Um, And then at the same time, like is something also lost if you like give a kid medication that helps with those sort of cognitive and organizational skills and also um, takes away from some other more abstracted, dreamier set of stuff that's going on with them in their heads? I don't know. What do you think? I think that when you have a kid who really has ADHD, um, they actually it, it kind of becomes like a superpower when you start treatment for it or or co- come up with some tool to cope with it, whether it's medication or some other tool. I understand that there are other tools, although, you know, I I rely on medication because it allows me to harness all of the things my brain can do at the same time. Um, I wasn't a professional writer until I started taking medication for ADHD. I didn't get my degree. I dropped out of college the first time I went. I went back in my 30s, graduated top of the class when I was medicated for ADHD because I was able to study a variety of things at the same time and have a full-time job and you know, uh, work on books and so forth. I, I do think that there's a difference between somebody who can't and somebody for whom it's difficult. And a great piece of Mm -hmm. sort of language that I sort of learned in reading, you know, therapists and so forth would pass us articles from really people at the sort of the cutting edge of this is when you start looking at what your child can't do, not what they won't do, but what they literally can't do, that can really help you make a decision that it's really about them and not about you. And there were things that Teddy just could not do. Like he couldn't, not that he wouldn't. And that's, that's, you know, that sometimes there can be disagreement about that too, but sometimes it really is can't, not won't, you know? Well, that really is the judgment call of parenting with all this stuff. Like we, you know, this topic that came up last week and that will always come up is like, my kid won't get out of of the house on time in the morning and they forget their shoes and blah, blah, blah. And like, to this day, I still don't know if my 14 year old, who's the main offender at this point, if he can't get dressed on time (laughs) or if he won't, like I literally have no way of understanding which it is, you know? And like the fact that it's been a consistent problem since like, you know, first grade suggests to me that maybe I should accept that he can't, but then occasionally he does. And like after a particularly bad morning, he'll say the night bef- the night before, I think, you know, dad, I'm going to do better tomorrow. I'll be like, all right, well, let's do it. And then the next day he'll be great. He'll get there. Mm-hmm. And then the, and then it will just slip into chaos again. So it's like, how do you know if your child can't or won't? Well, you and can't that, do it consistently. Your, all, of your, yeah. <laughs> all of your feelings about the child depend on that question, right? Can you, like, blame them and get angry with them for being unwilling to go along? Or can you, like, pity them and feel sorry for them? And it try does to help take them? the anger out of the equation. It really does. And I think that's one of the reasons why that language sort of exists. It's a, Because it, it makes you feel like, all right, I want to help you. Not like I want to be mad at you because you can't do this thing that everybody else can do. <laughs> You know, you can't seem to get your act together, but it, it, it does change your outlook to one of, all right, how can we support and help and build the skill that you clearly don't have? It changes the conversation internally and within the family because, you know, a kid who can't uh, consistently get his act together to get out of the house on time is a, is an annoyance to everybody. It's like disruptive to everyone. So, um, yeah, I mean, it has to be socialized that way. I think that really, really helps. Okay, let's go to our next call. This call comes from Lauren, who's in Maryland. My question is, what do you do when your kids find money, like spare change, when you are out and about in the world? So we recently started giving an allowance to our nearly six-year-old son, and we like how that's working out. But it seems to have increased his interest in general in money, and now he is super into staring at the ground when we go out and looking for coins that he might find. So my question for you is, what do you do when your kids come across the spare change? Do you make them leave it there? Do you let them keep it? Do you make them leave it in the next tip jar they encounter? Do you make them share half of it with a sibling? Um, In case you're curious, I managed to, last time this happened, convince my kid to strategically leave it in places where he thought other kids would also encounter it and experience the same joy that he had felt upon finding the money. So I would love to hear your thoughts on this. Wow. Uh, (laughs) Carvel, what do you think? (laughs) Oh, man, I have to go first, huh? I mean, I, I, 
okay, <laughs> there's a couple of things here to unpack. I think the, I mean, the, the, the actual question is what do you do when your kids find money? I don't do anything. They found money. Like, congratulations. Like, you will also lose money. So I feel like the cycle, it will be complete. Like, there's, I don't need to intervene in that process. Like, I'm so happy you found a dollar. I'm sure you will lose many in your going life. Um, I, I do understand the impetus to, um, to, to kind of like enact the idea that sort of freely have you been given or freely have you received, so shall you give. I think that that's, I think there's a, I think there's a great lesson in there. I think that saying, you know, suggesting, I would, in my case, I suggest to my kid, hey, this money that you happen to come upon easily, you could also find something helpful to do with it. You could donate to a cause that you find interesting or, or put it in a tip jar for someone, you know, whatever. Like, I think that's an important lesson uh, in general. But I don't think that finding money and necessarily like that, then you're required to like to leave it somewhere else, which I think is even weirder to like take <laughs> money from the ground and then relocate it to a second location <laughs> so that it, like why not just leave it on the ground in the first place? So um, but I think the other thing I would speculate and it's always hard with listener calls because you don't know the whole backstory. But what I sense underneath this is a kind of anxiety about how to introduce kids to the world of money and maybe even a little bit of discomfort or fear around what we might perceive as, you know, sort of financial lust on the part of kids who have newly been introduced to the power of the dollar bill. And I think that that's something that for me, you know, I think there was, I had, I experienced a little bit of that too. Like, is my kid going to turn into some money grubbing sort of like Scrooge McDuck duck type situation <laughs> where, you know what I mean? Like where they don't want to give anything to anyone and all they care about is acquiring, acquiring. And, um, I found I had that feeling early on once we introduced uh, allowances and they were getting money for Christmas or whatever. I found that to be somewhat of an overblown fear in my case because the lessons of generosity and how to have a healthy relationship with money don't come in one particular moment. They come through the whole way you conduct your life through all the 18 years that they're under your roof. Um, so I would say you probably can stand to ease up a little bit on this and just kind of let the kids work their way through the process of finding and losing money. I totally agree. Kid, kid found a quarter. That's great. You found a quarter. It's basically <laughs> worthless. There's almost nothing you can get with a quarter. But to your kid, your six-year-old kid, that is a precious treasure. Let them have the completely symbolic precious treasure. If you want to teach them something, teach them about, as Carvel suggested, teach them about charity. They could put it in a special piggy bank for, for people who don't have as much as they have. Or teach them about saving. They could put it in a special piggy bank so that they can buy the like great thing that they are looking forward, that, they, that you, they've been bugging you for. Like they want the toy. Let them put all the quarters in the piggy bank and, and save until they have the toy. But the thing of like, you found this money and you shouldn't get to enjoy it at all, or you should get the thrill of finding it and then have to give it, like leave it somewhere so someone else can have the thrill of finding it seems, um, yeah, as Carvel suggested, it seems like there's some fear that like being happy to find a quarter is like intrinsically going to corrupt something about the kid's soul, <laughs> which I think is probably not realistic. <laughs> yeah, I, I actually was leaning towards that's kind of bananas too myself without, you know, being judgy. I was just talking about parents being judgy, of course. Yeah, no no judgment here. <laughs> um, I, I do think that what Carvel said, you know, really strikes me is that the attitudes around money. And I I tried doing the allowance thing when my kids were younger and thinking this would you know be really uh, important for them to learn how to manage money and so forth. I found that there are better, easier uh, ways to you know, impart those values. You know, our rule in our house is if you contribute um, to the house at large, then when you want things, you'll get them. <laughs> and if you don't contribute, it's going to be more difficult for you to get the things that you want. And, you know, when our kids get money for birthdays or for doing work around the house or whatever, they can save it. They've become savers kind of on their own, which is nice. Um, but yeah, this also struck me as the other thing that I thought was she has this huge dilemma around her kids finding money. So she's going to have them put it on the ground so that someone else can have the huge dilemma. Right. Maybe some stranger's kid is going to turn into Scrooge McDuck. Shot in, shot in Freud. Um, <laughs> yeah, also, I, you know, I, I do think there's a difference that we should know that if, you know, your kid finds $100 on the ground, the process is going to be a little bit different though, right? Yeah, they have to give it to you. <laughs> Yeah, that, yes, or at absolutely. least make a, 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 a good faith effort to figure out if it belongs to somebody in the immediate vicinity. Maybe. Be maybe. Before giving it to you to pay for their upkeep. <laughs> in any case, 
Let's move on. Um, we're going to talk about parenting hacks a little bit. Um, I, I made a list of some of the, the best hacks that you guys suggested on our Facebook page, and I sent them around. Um, let's, uh, we're going to take it in turns to pick the ones that seemed uh, either the most actionable and useful or maybe the most uh, curious to us. Um, I, there's one that particularly struck me, which I had not even tried and seems so obvious. Uh, Libby Lawrence uh, suggested the beautiful three-word phrase, clean before screen. Somebody else, Zoe Kashner, said, my kids will pick up the entire room in return for a half-hour show. If you make screen time a privilege that has to be earned and you'll get a lot more effort out of your kids. Um, I think that's a great idea. I'm going to do that. What do you think? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> is I that mean, obvious? Does everybody know well, this one except for me? <laughs> well, that, that, that kind of goes along. I mean, I just think giving it a, a cute name with a rhyme. I mean, that's she's branding it, right? Yeah. She's doing the like death panel, uh, uh, you know, uh, Obamacare. Uh, you know, she's definitely doing a good job branding it and giving it a thing and making it sort of a family brand. But um, yeah, do what do what I want you to do. And then you can do what you want. I mean, that's kind of the way the world works, right? Yeah. Somebody else, Sarah Draper Springer, has a particularly ornate version of, of this, which is um, we created a screen time checklist that the kids have to follow. They have to, one, pick up all their stuff around the house, two, read for 30 minutes, three, do something creative like build, design, or draw, and four, say something nice and heartfelt to three people. They have to do all four things just to get some screen time. That seems like a lot. Sometimes I need the kids to be watching TV for a little while. <laughs> Yeah, that really Amen. seems like a gauntlet yeah. that you have to go. The kids have to go through. I mean, this this is. I mean, are you watching screens or are you picking the sword out of the stone here? I just feel like <laughs> there's a lot there. Um, God bless you if, as a parent, you have time to facilitate and manage all that stuff. I know I don't. That right. That's right. That requires a whole bunch of supervision as well in order to get them doing this stuff. Because right, that's the other thing about screen time is that it serves that sort of functional purpose for the parents. Is that it's like when you need to get forty five minutes of work done, then forty five minutes of screen time is a a way that you can do that. Whereas like making sure that they go around and do all the things on the checklist doesn't really take that effort off your shoulders in the same way. Um, all right, Rebecca, do you have one of these? Yeah, there was one I really liked, even though I'm not quite here yet. Um, so we heard that uh, this one listener has a curfew trick of a curfew a curfew alarm where they put a travel alarm clock outside the parents' bedroom door for 10 minutes past curfew. And then when the kids come in, they have to turn the alarm clock off so the parents can stay sleeping because, as she said, we decided it was important to be awakened only if they were not home when they were supposed to be rather than staying up to make sure they were supposed to be home. So I love this. This very much goes along with my parenting philosophy of if you are going to make a rule, um, don't make it a rule that is going to inconvenience you so much that it's not worth having. <laughs> you know, it shouldn't be like a life killer to, you know, have your kids have to be home at a certain time. Figure out a way to have them be responsible for it. And I also like this because they are actually the ones who are in charge of making sure the thing actually happens, like the alarm is turned off. So it's not about just coming home. It's coming home so they can do a task. So you're actually you know, giving incentivizing them. Explain the system one more time because I feel like I think it's clever and I feel like I would have missed it if I was just hearing it for the first time. All right. So your curfew say is is one AM, right? Let's just pretend I you, you have me as a mom and, and who's super liberal and uh and and flexible. And I don't I don't have a curfew yet. So I think it's just because there hasn't had been a reason for one yet. But um so what I would do as your mom is I would set an alarm clock in the house for one ten AM so that when you came home before one or at one or five minutes after one, which is why I like her system because it gives them a 10 minute uh, grace period. They're responsible for shutting off the alarm so that it won't go off at 1 10 a.m. and wake up everyone in the house. That's the curfew alarm. I think that's great. It's brilliant. It's brilliant. It's brilliant. And I think I, I, I love it for all the reasons that you said. And also the key thing would be that you wouldn't be able to set the alarm until after they left the house. Because knowing my kids, the first thing they would do, because my kids are always trying to figure out some kind of hack to any rule. So the first thing they would do is figure out some way to, set, to turn off the alarm before they left. And like, you know what I mean? They would, they would literally sit down and hack into the mainframe of this alarm clock <laughs> if they thought they could somehow <laughs> manipulate the outcome. Make sure so it's you, not an so, internet connected alarm clock that they can <laughs> exactly then fuck right. with from their phones. 
<laughs> yeah, exactly. So I, I'd really have to make sure that, you know, that it was executed in a way that the only way they could turn this off is by coming back. Because the other thing I could see them doing is um, if you have two kids, is one getting the other to kind of pull the thing sure. at the last minute. Or leaving um, again but, after yes. they set the alarm. I mean, that could happen. But isn't, it, isn't a curfew more That's about your peace of mind than anything else? So, yes. like, if you it's, wake up in the morning and you haven't been woken up, you have the perception your kids got home on time, right? It's not about them actually being home at an arbitrary time. (laughs) Spoken like the true parent of teenagers. I think that's one of the big differences when you have teenage kids, double-digit age kids versus single-digit age kids, is that the older they get, the more you're really just kind of navigating for your own serenity and comfort. Right. uh, Rather than trying to manage theirs. (laughs) It's true, although there is something to, like— Nothing good is going to happen to them at three in the morning outside of the house. You know what I mean? <laughs> yeah, like maybe true. something fun is going to happen between midnight and one. But like after two, nothing good is going to happen. They need to be back in the house. Ideally, that's correct. But yeah. um, if they want to be out at 3 a.m., as someone who used to do it, they will find a way. <laughs> they will find a way. <laughs> All right. Carvel, you got a hack? Well, I actually, going back to the early years of my kids, I really liked this needy kid at bedtime thing um, where this person says uh, uh, they have a needy kid and the bedtime was stressful because being alone in her room was difficult for the kid. And so the strategy they came up with was they told her, look, you read three books. And then after you read three, one of us will come in and snuggle you for a few minutes. Then you read another three books and then another one will come in and snuggle you. So it's three books for every snuggle is the ratio. And of course, the kid cannot last through three books. Um, They're dead asleep halfway through book number two. And I love this one because I like tricking kids into (laughs) doing what I want them to do. (laughs) I think all the great parenting hacks involve deception on some level. And this is a masterwork. This is true chef kissing fingers, a masterwork. It takes a kid who's like young enough and sincere enough that they're not going to claim that they've read three books before they've actually read the three books, right? It takes a kid who's still playing along. I would say, yes, there is absolutely an age statute of limitations on how effective this can be. But if you can pull this off, you know, somewhere before they are, I don't know, six or something, I think this is a good way to deal with some of the difficulty that kids have with kind of going to sleep um, without you hovering over them the entire time. Which, by the way, you probably caused yourself by having a really, really elaborate, (laughs) cuddly bedtime routine. I mean, that's just me being a little judgy, but uh, I was never on board with that whole deal of like, we do these 18 things before you can go to sleep (laughs) because, (laughs) I don't know, sometimes mommy has stuff that she needs to do too. And, um, you know, I think a a bath and a, a here's a book or sometimes read a book together is great, but having it to have to be the same every single time otherwise you can't sleep you're basically setting yourself up for never being able to go anywhere ever <laughs> and leave your kids behind or never being able to go out for a drink on a tuesday night with your spouse i mean i don't know i i've never really understood that culture around the elaborate long um bedtime routine but that's just me and i'm not judging if you if it works for you and your family good for you <laughs> but it didn't work for me i'm not judging it's going to be rebecca's motto i think <laughs> I'm not judging after I judge. That's sort of like the... (laughs) (laughs) The thing that most of these hacks have in common is that they put the rules in the hands of a third party and uh, a kind of dispassionate sort of third party of justice. Like we have this timer or we have this routine or we have this sign or whatever it is that says like, look, it's not me making this rule. (laughs) This is just the way it is kind of thing. And I think that that's that that plus deception. Very important. (laughs) Those are key parts (laughs) of a good parenting hack. So if you're deception and torts. That's setting it. setting up contracts, yeah, and lying. That's that's the <laughs> yeah. secret of parenting. Um, I liked there it is. I liked other ones about timers. A lot of people said like, oh, I you know we set the timer on the phone and we're going to be done playing in seven minutes when the phone when the phone timer goes off. And and a lot of toddlers are like ready to accept the impersonal authority of the phone timer much more quickly than they will accept the subjective authority of dad. Which like fair enough. Rebecca, you got one more. Oh, uh, this is like for parents of babies. And um, I I just really like this idea, even though it's super obvious. And this mom talks about how when she's making beds, including cribs, she alternates three plus layers of waterproof liners and sheets so that if there's an accident or an illness, all she has to do is strip off one layer and go right back to bed. (laughs) 
<laughs> Which, you know, um, I'm going to add to your um, manipulate, or, I'm sorry, not manipulation, deception uh, plus third party authority. I'm going to add to that, you know, stuff to uh, help you not, uh, I don't know, be a little lazy. <laughs> A little bit of laziness sometimes really helps. And this is one of those great lazy tips where like, you know, it is worth spending an extra $20 to get two more of those mattress pads so that you don't have to have one of those like three hour laundry fiascos in the middle of the night when someone has a stomach virus. I love it. Amen. Great. Carvel, do you have any hacks of your own that you can share with listeners? Yeah. So I actually just thought of this one. And um, this has to do with having two kids who fight over everything, which is that whenever we have to split anything, let's say there's a donut or some kind of thing like that. That's like we're only going to there's only one and we're going to split it or anything that has to be divided evenly down the middle. What we do is we make one kid divide it and then the other kid picks the piece you, that they want. You split. I choose. Yeah. Love that, it. Exactly. Classic. That way. This the classic, and I I didn't know it was a classic. I thought I'd developed that. I was feeling very high and mighty <laughs> after after I came up with that. I thought I had seen the light that God had spoken through me, and then I later found out that that is a common technique. Yeah. But if you haven't heard it, now you have. I I have a friend who, when we were kids, he had three siblings, and they were all super competitive and always trying to get the bigger part of everything. And so the parents started doing you split, I choose. And the one who was splitting would like spend ages trying to split it just as evenly as they possibly could. And then the other one would like get out the scale and weigh the two pieces in order to see which one was just like marginally bigger. Um, it makes it into a, a, a game of avarice and greed. Yeah. And if you have a kid who's really Excellent. good at math, you can do what my son used to do when he was like in second grade, which is split it in such a way where the time top had a lot of surface area, but there was like nothing underneath. So it would look like half and half, but then you would bite into it. It would basically be a hollow hole underneath of the piece that you had chosen. Yeah. it's a good one. Excellent. Rebecca, do you have any that apply to teenagers particularly? Well, mine is a little bit um, before they were teenagers. However, I have, you know, sort of instilled the same idea in my kids and now they sort of employ the same tactic and I really figured this out when I was first getting babysitters to come take care of my kids and that is the first time you have a new babysitter come to your house pay them really 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 well like like a mistake well like a high level of well like maybe give them for a couple hours of work like a $20 tip or something and the reason being that the next time you contact them by phone or text they will make themselves available <laughs> They will make themselves available. So, you know, I've always believed in being generous to babysitters. I think it is a thankless uh, teen job. And I feel like, you know, if I'm entrusting you to keep my children alive, um, it's worth more than $8 an hour to me, I guess. And I just find that if, if you really go over the top the first time, you will have a nice, big, healthy stable of babysitters and always be able to find someone to take care of your kids when something comes up at the last minute. So that's my hack. So what happens when you you come the next time and you don't lace them up with the huge healthy tip? Is is there because that would be my concern? Right now, no, I, like I do intermittent reinforcement. Like, yeah, I'm all about intermittent <laughs> reinforcement. So <laughs> our babysitters, you know, I, I I think I probably developed a reputation of paying overpaying a little bit all the time, which helps. But um, I really came to realize that a couple bucks extra an hour is only still a few bucks to me, but it's a lot of money to a 13, 14, 15, or 16-year-old, right? To make, mm -hmm. you know, 12 or $15 an hour babysitting instead of 10. It's it's a big hourly wage for them. And, you know, if you go out for a four-hour four evening out, it only ends up being, what, 18 bucks for you tops? <laughs> you know, so um, I... <laughs> You know, I, I think that the big tip the first time and then I would do it, you know, if it had been a last minute uh, engagement in the future or if I feel like we'd come home particularly late or something, I, I would do a, a big tip once in a while to sort of keep them knowing that that it was possible uh, <laughs> for, you know, for that to happen. A little bit of intermittent reinforcement, I think, goes a long way when you're especially hiring teenagers who are often unavailable because they have something better to do. This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Hey, listeners, whether you love true crime or comedies, celebrity interviews, news, or even motivational speakers, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue, right? And guess what? Now you can call the shots on your auto insurance, too. Enter the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. The Name Your Price tool puts you in charge of your auto insurance by working just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance. Then they'll show you a variety of coverages that fit within your budget 
giving you options. Now, that's something you'll want to press play on. It's easy to start a quote, and you'll be able to choose the best option for you, fast. It's just one of the many ways you can save with Progressive Insurance. Quote today at Progressive.com to try the Name Your Price tool for yourself and join over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. Great. Let's move on to recommendations. Uh, Rebecca, what do you recommend this week? Well, I believe last time I was on the show, Gabe, I recommended My So-Called Life, uh, the series that holds up very, very well. I have something else that I want to add to that, which is that I have discovered that doing media um, with your kids, but separately, either at different times or at different places, really is the key to enjoying it with them. So the example I'm going to give right now, um, don't judge. That's the theme for this podcast, right? My 15 and a half year old is very mature, very bright, very studious and service minded and wonderful and responsible in all ways. And so he's pretty much allowed to watch anything that he's interested in. He's also a bit of a budding filmmaker. So recently he just watched all of Breaking Bad and Better Call Saul. And because he watched it at a different time than we did, you know, namely like on his iPhone, you know, late at night before going to bed or whatever, um, we had something to talk about in a way that we wouldn't have had if we watched it together. So when we watch a movie together, it's like we're watching it together. And then when it's over, we do something else or, um, you know, maybe talk about it for a few minutes. When he watches Breaking Bad by himself and then talks about particular episodes with us at the dinner table, it's like we had a different experience and we're able to talk about it through our own lenses. Like there isn't this thing where like, oh, we just sat through it. So he ended up writing a paper for school. He's reading Great Gatsby in school. He ended up writing a paper where he compared some of the themes in Breaking Bad to the themes in Gatsby and has really taken this to a whole different level that. I don't think would have happened if we had just, you know, been like, hey, let's watch this thing together that we heard was cool. Um, So now he's listening to S-Town. You know, I've listened to it for my own podcast because we're doing some like review podcasts about it. And now he's listening to it. And we've been texting all day about his thoughts about S-Town. And it's opened up all this conversational opportunity because he hears it through his 15 and a half year old lens and I hear it through my 40 year old lens. And um, it's something that we can share and really talk about like like grownups talk about media together. So I've, I've found that to be a real revelation and I recommend doing the same with your kids no matter what the media is. If you're not liberal enough to make it Breaking Bad, no judgment for me if you don't judge me back. <laughs> but uh, it's really working for us right now. Uh, I'm really looking forward to that because for the past three weeks, I've been against my will having very intense conversations about the My Little Pony Equestria Girls franchise, (laughs) which I don't really have any opinions about other than that it's weird that there's a whole series of books in which the My Little Pony characters turn into human girls and go to high school. Um, But I, I could tell you all about the different characters and which one has which traits and how good or bad they are. And um, I, so I'm really looking forward to those conversations being about something that I give a shit about. Yeah, I don't blame you. That sounds freaking awful. Yes, and uh, you were talking a couple weeks ago about kids' music, too, which I never tolerated that. I'm like, you will just, if you want to listen to music, you will just listen to music I like. Guys, that's just not going to happen. <laughs> I just cannot have that in my car. It's just yeah. not going to freaking happen. And so... God love you. My my husband has always been that way with his daughter. He'll sit and watch, you know, even to this day, he'll watch the Vampire Diaries with her or whatever she's into. And uh, it's like, I just look at that. I'm like, that's just, I'm really impressed by that that skill set that you have to tolerate that. That's impressive. Uh, I'm just a pushover. Um, I have a recommendation, <laughs> which is, um, first of all, we got into the familiar situation where Eliza, my daughter, um, you know, wanted to know, she got to the point where she wanted to know where her little brother had come from. Um, and, it, you know, it gets you into this famously tricky territory. And, and when I was a kid, I remember having that book, the famous book where the little sperms have the top hats and the flowers and the box of chocolates. Um, and it, I remember it was helpful but also very confusing it it focuses a lot on like the sexual act and it uses metaphors about roller coasters and sneezes and stuff like that and it didn't really clarify anything but it went into a lot of detail it was like specific in an unhelpful way do you you guys remember that one yeah what where it's called where do i come from does nobody else know this i I was thinking about that movie when you were saying that you know oh yeah 
Yeah. <laughs> the one with the yeah, people wait, dressed wait, wait. Yeah, 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 the one where he yeah he dresses up like a sperm and goes through. Yeah, here it is. It's called "Where no. Did I Come From." It's by Peter Mayle, illustrated <laughs> by Arthur Robbins. Um, and I will um, we nope. can post some pictures on <laughs> Jesus. the Jesus, no. I mean, I, I just learned about sex from Judy Bloom, like everyone else, like on the yeah. streets, you know. Exactly. I learned about it because I read Are You There, God? It's Me, Margaret, like 10 times in a row when I was 12. <laughs> you got it. <laughs> the Amazon reviews for Where Did I Come From are radically split between the five and the one star, which is always a good sign. <laughs> well, it really depends on how you feel about top hats. I mean, I think that that's the dividing I line. cannot believe I'm seeing so many good reviews. This book describes orgasms as if we should all go out and have one. <laughs> we should, though. I mean, Heaven come on. Wait a second. I'm sorry. <laughs> Disagree. Good God. <laughs> anyway, the book we wound up getting for her is a book called It's Not the Stork, a book about girls, boys, babies, bodies, families, and friends. Uh, it's by Roby Harris and, and illustrated by Michael Emberley. Um, and it's great because it's very matter of fact. It's just about biology. And it gets the like the part about sexual intercourse over with in like two panels of a whole graphic novel. So most of what that you're learning about is about like fallopian tubes and ovulation and and the gametes and all that stuff, which is quite interesting if you're a little kid, but also very abstract and sort of alien. And then at one point she stopped me and she was like, wait, the man puts his penis there? And I was like, yep, and puts it there. And then that's how the sperm gets in. The, and, and she was like, oh, okay. And then we move on to the next thing of like what happens in the egg. And I, she's never asked about it again. Like now she knows, and I'm sure it will come up and be, you know, interesting and troublesome in various ways. Um, but it really handles it in a very sort of straightforward, unemphatic way that like did not turn into a whole, I don't know, uh, it's great. It's not the stork, a book about girls, boys, babies, bodies, families, and friends. Look at you making uh, sex boring since 2017. Yeah. <laughs> Good for you. Oh, I've been doing it. He's like, I've been doing it way before, before that. that. <laughs> <laughs> me, me and Carvel both see that punchline sitting there. <laughs> it's so obvious. Yeah. And we just both <laughs> leap for it. Um, Carvel, yeah. what do you recommend? My recommendation today is a book called A Pebble for Your Pocket by Thich Nhat Hanh, the Vietnamese Buddhist uh, thinker and, uh, I guess, monk. Um, it's, it's really, it's a little bit hippie. We embrace the hippie here in the Bay Area. Um, but the thing I like about this book is that it works for so many different levels. So our experience of reading it, we have, like I said, we have a kid that's 11. We have a kid that's 14. The 14-year-old is listening to all kinds of hip-hop and just is like in the world and seeing things on the internet and everything. So he really views himself as too old for story time or any kind of like being read to, you know. And the 11-year-old sort of seems to get that she can safely straddle those two lines. And so this book, A Pebble for Your Pocket, is great because it what it consists of is <clears throat> a series of short stories that are maybe a page, a page and a half. Uh, and each of them has a kind of lesson that they expel out explicitly at the end. It's just sort of like, um, you know, and the lesson, the moral of the story is sort of don't count your chickens before they hatch or whatever it is. And for some reason, this kind of writing and this approach seems to work for both kids because the concepts are sort of com complex enough that they both they get to think about them and apply them to their lives, but they're simple enough that they don't. It doesn't take a lot of sort of outsized reading comprehension at the time. This book works weirdly and surprisingly well, and it works well for a parent because I think the reason it's called a pebble in your pocket is that. It's all these little thoughts that you sort of get to hold with you and just kind of play with over and over again, like a pebble in your pocket. And as a parent, sometimes I find myself referring to concepts that were brought up in the book and saying kind of like, well, this thing about, you know, how we're all connected in these various ways. This is what your story about that weird thing that happened in math class. That's what it reminds me of. And so it's like a, a really weird way, an interesting way to get kids to start thinking about these larger spiritual concepts that my kids seem to be interested in. So the book is A Pebble for Your Pocket. It's by Thich Nhat Hanh, and uh, I, I recommend it. Sounds great. All right, that's our show. Um, I want to thank Carvel Wallace and Rebecca Lavoy for being with us today. Thank you guys so much. Oh, thank you so much for having me. This was really fun. It was great. I can't wait to do it again. 
likewise. Uh, we'll be back in two weeks. Uh, if you like our show, go to our Facebook page, facebook.com slash momanddadarefighting, where you can um, post your thoughts, suggestions, comments, criticisms, etc. Um, also, ask us questions for advice on our Facebook page or at our special phone number, 424-255-7833. Uh, I'm Gabriel Roth. Thanks for listening. See you next time. For I'll be there Putting down my top hat Mussing up my white tie Dancing in my tails Top hats on sperm edition. <laughs> yeah, I was going to say. <laughs> Please, can we name it that? I want to tell everyone... <laughs> I well, mean, my, you know, my Top Hats on Sperm podcast dropped this week. <laughs> we want to be edgy, guys. <laughs> it's 2017, it's, it's man. It's 2017. If we can't put Top Hats on Sperm, <laughs> the terrorists have won. <laughs> Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on Chumbacasino.com. I looked over at the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's ChumbaCasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void. we prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.